to the Very Well Mind podcast. We've interviewed over 100 authors, experts, entrepreneurs, athletes, musicians, and others to help you learn strategies to care for your mental health. This episode is hosted by psychotherapist and best-selling author Amy Morin. Now let's get into the episode. The way that you talk to yourself matters. And if you're like most people, you might find that you're hard on yourself sometimes. Maybe you call yourself names or you talk yourself out of doing really hard things. Research shows, though, that self-criticism backfires. The key to feeling good and performing well involves talking to yourself with kindness. So today I'm talking to Kristen Neff, a top researcher on self-compassion. She's an associate professor of psychology at the University of Texas and the author of the best-selling book, Self-Compassion, The Proven Power of Being Kind to Yourself. Today, she's talking about her newest book, Fierce Self-Compassion. While her book targets women, I'm sure that anyone can benefit from her knowledge. Sometimes talking to yourself with kindness isn't enough. In order to alleviate suffering, you might have to use your inner dialogue to inspire yourself to take action. On today's show, Kristen shares the difference between tender self-compassion and fierce self-compassion, how self-compassion improves mental health, and how to start practicing it every single day. Make sure to stick around until the end of the episode for the therapist's take. This is the part of the show where I break down Kristen's strategies and share how you can start incorporating them into your own life. So here's Kristen Neff on how self-compassion can help you grow mentally stronger. Dr. Kristen Neff, welcome to the Very Well Mind podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. I was excited to learn that you wrote a second book. Your first book, Self-Compassion, I've referenced in my work many times in articles I write as well as in my book. And then I was excited to see that you wrote this one about fierce self-compassion. Can you tell me a little bit about what, what led to the second book, why you decided to write this one and why it's geared more towards women? Yeah, yeah. So um, after writing my first book, I realized that many people had a misconception about self-compassion. They they thought it was only kind of the tender, gentle, um, accepting side. And that is a very important part of self-compassion. When we're in pain or we judge ourselves, we can really accept ourselves and accept the fact that our life's imperfect. We soothe ourselves, we comfort ourselves, and, and that's the real healing power of self-compassion. But there's also a really powerful action-oriented side that many people aren't aware of. So, for instance, um, sometimes in order to alleviate our suffering, which is really at the heart of compassion, right, the desire to alleviate suffering, sometimes in order to do that, we need to stand up for ourselves, or we need to draw boundaries, or we need to protect ourselves. So, for instance, the whole Me Too movement, is that that has been unfolding. I, I've been realizing, well, this is a this is a self-compassion movement, or the Black Lives Matter movement. That's also a self-compassion movement. These are people standing up and saying, you will not harm me anymore. This is not okay. You cannot treat me unjustly. Well, that's self-compassion. Also motivation. You know, actually the number one block to self-compassion is people think that they will be less motivated. But if we care about ourselves, we want ourselves to be well, we're going to change things. And here's the thing, not only change things about ourselves, but we also need to change things about our world, right? We can't have continue to have such a broken, dysfunctional world if we want to care for ourselves. 
right? And so it has to be inside as well as outside, this motivation to change. And then the third thing I started really noticing, and then this will come to the wife or woman bit, is even though nurturing and compassion is part of the female gender role, gender role socialization, and most of the people who come to my workshops are women, women actually have less self-compassion than men do. And that's because women are so socialized to be self-sacrificing, right? To help others, have compassion for others. But there's this idea that it's selfish for a woman to meet her own needs. You know, she's always putting others first. And that means she has less self-compassion. Men feel a little bit more entitled to meet their own needs because of, you know, because of gender roles. And so again, part of fierce self-compassion is sometimes saying no to others and yes to ourselves, you know, doing what we need to, taking action again. It's not just accepting ourselves, it's also taking action to make ourselves happy and fulfilled. Um, and so here's the thing about fierce and tender self-compassion. In order to have well-being, they need to be balanced and integrated. Too much tenderness without enough fierceness is like complacency, but too much fierceness without enough tenderness is hostility. But men, right, they're, they're socialized to be fierce, but they aren't allowed to be tender, which harms men. And women, we're socialized to be tender, but we aren't allowed to be fierce, which harms us. And so the reason I wrote it mainly for women is it's kind of, the book would have to be slightly different for men. It'd have to be like how men can harness kindness to be tender and accepting of themselves. And so that's why I wrote it for women, basically, because to combat some of this, this really restrictive gender role socialization that stands in our way. I'm glad that you wrote this book and I'm glad that you're clearing up some of the misconceptions about self-compassion. I find as a therapist, sometimes people will come into my office and I see two different things, I guess. Sometimes somebody has done something that hurts someone else. Maybe it's something big, like somebody that had an affair. And yeah. they say, well, you know, I've got to forgive myself. And they, they move on almost too quickly and yeah. don't take responsibility. Yeah. The other thing I see is people will sometimes say, well, uh, my goal is to, to get healthier, but I just needed to take care of myself today. So I, I didn't go to the gym and then they yeah. don't go to the gym tomorrow or the next day. And they say that's right. about being compassionate to themselves. Yeah. So where yeah. is that line? How do you, how do you define self-compassion? Yeah, well, so I mean, quite simply, it is concern, just compassion for others is concerned with alleviating other suffering and self-compassion is concerned with allevi alleviating our own suffering. In other words, being well and healthy, very well, right? <laughs> as you, as you call right. it best. And so again, um, if we're really self-compassionate, we aren't going to just blow off like going to the gym or eating well, because being being uh, giving yourself pleasure, if it's harming you, is not alleviating your suffering, it's causing suffering. Right. And the same thing with other people. You know, if, if, if we really want to make a change in the world, if we harm other people by being too angry or, you know, um, calling people names or creating social divisions, that's not harming. That's not helping ourselves or others either. So compassion really, you might say, is the ultimate healthy mindset. And by the way, it's hard to say exactly what actions lead to health or well-being and what you don't. What don't. Sometimes you do need to just take a break. Sometimes you don't, and you're the you're really the only one who knows. So self compassion is not a, a particular set of behaviors. It's just asking yourself the question: What do I need right now to be healthy and to alleviate my suffering? And then answering that question, which it might look different from day to day, right? And also, there's a lot of different tools. Sometimes we need fierceness. Sometimes we need tenderness. Sometimes we need to motivate ourselves. Sometimes we need to draw boundaries. Uh, really, it's it's a, it's a wise mindset. It guides us day by day in terms of what do I need right now 
to regain balance and wholeness and well-being. And I like that in your book, you talk a lot about how it's an ongoing journey, right? You're not there. You, you don't declare yourself self-compassionate and no. then you don't ever have to worry about it done. again. Yeah. yeah. And I know you've done tons of research on it, but can you just give us yeah. some of the benefits about why we should practice more self-compassion? Oh yeah. So, so since my last book, I think there's um, been, you know, about 3000 more studies since my last book. It's, it's just, you know, new studies come out every single day showing the benefits. So in terms of mental health, um, significant reductions in anxiety, depression, stress, um, you know, things like suicidal ideation, a maladaptive coping, post-traumatic stress syndrome, eating disorders. Um, uh, also, um, actually, so it reduces the negative, but in terms of positive mental health, here's the thing about self-compassion. It actually feels good when you're self-compassionate. You feel connected. You feel kind. These are positive emotions. So it's linked to more happiness and life satisfaction, right? And hope and optimism. So it helps you mentally. Um, it helps you physically because when we're in a more compassionate mind state, it works with the nervous system to be more, more relaxed. We're less activated. We're, we're not so much in fight or flight. So it leads to better immune function. We sleep better. Um, we, we have fewer like colds and aches and pains because our body, body's functioning better. Um, it helps us cope. For instance, there's been a lot of research on COVID, right? And some recent research showing that people who are more self-compassionate were able to cope with COVID better. They were less derailed by it. They, they were less likely to gain the COVID-10 because they didn't need to emotionally eat to deal with their stress. They could give themselves compassion, right? They were more able to see the silver linings like, hey, I get to spend more time with my family. Um, it's, uh, it's much better for motivation than self-criticism, right? It gives you, it allows you to learn from your failures, to have grit in the face of challenges, to have a, a, a growth mindset. You know, what can I learn from this? What's important to sustain that motivation? Uh, really important for all, for all our healthcare workers, but, you know, parents are also caregivers. It reduces burnout, right? So it reduces the burnout that comes from caring from others, whether you're professional or just in your life, because the more you give compassion to yourself, the more resources you have to give to others without burning out. And the list really goes on and on. It's just, it's just phenomenal. It's, it's really one of the, you might say, the most easily accessible tools we have for helping ourselves. It's like a superpower we have hidden in our back pocket. We don't even know that we can use it. And it's not rocket science. It's not like you have to like meditate for half an hour, you know, or attain like a state of Zen or Nirvana, right? It's just like treating yourself like you'd treat a good friend. It's, it's not actually that hard. We just have to remember to do it. And I like that. Simple advice. Let's treat yourself like you treat somebody else, a good friend. Or how do you exactly. talk to yourself? Talk to yourself like you talk to somebody else. For some reason, we tend to have this idea that if we beat ourselves up, if we're really hard on ourselves, that that will motivate us. Yet yeah, we know it doesn't. The <laughs> it research doesn't. is pretty clear. That doesn't yeah. make you want to I mean, do better tomorrow. It, it kind of does in the short term. Just like, yeah, if you spank a child, corporal punishment, it, it kind of works, but it leads to all sorts of long-term negative effects like depression, anxiety, shame. You know, shame is not exactly a get up and go mind state. You know, think about it. When you're full of shame, you do not feel very motivated. So it's, it's a much more effective and sustainable motivator over time. And for those of us that do struggle sometimes with calling ourselves names, with saying mean yeah. things to ourselves, one of the parts of your book that especially stood out to me was thanking your inner critic. Can you yeah. talk a little bit about that? 
Yeah, right. So we don't want to beat ourselves up for beating ourselves up. Because again, you know, it's kind of a misguided form of compassion in the sense that there's a part of us, maybe not very wise part of us, that thinks that by beating ourselves up, we're helping ourselves. We're going to better ourselves. We won't engage in these harmful behaviors. And so, you know, again, the underlying motive is actually a good one. It's just very misguided. It doesn't actually work effectively. But if we try to shut the inner critic down and like you bully or or shame it or, you know, say, I'm not going to let you in. What happens is it gets that part of us gets scared, like because we really think we need to be criticized ourselves in order to be safe, in order to survive. And if we shut it down, it's just going to shout that much longer. But if we thank it and basically say, well, thank you for trying to keep me safe. I appreciate your efforts to warn me of dangers. Yes, I see this behavior is potentially harmful. Thank you for letting me know. <laughs> then it's like it calms down and we aren't adding to the circle of self-criticism by, you know, shaming ourselves. And then it's more easy for us to have these other parts of ourselves, like our wise compassion itself, have a say in the conversation. And so I have a whole practice that actually works with these principles. Um, it's actually very, very effective. So we kind of, we kind of almost harness the motivation of the self-critic to help ourselves in a more effective way, which is through encouragement. And by the way, sometimes it's constructive criticism. It's not like we give ourselves a pass. Sometimes it's like, hey, this really isn't working. You need to do something different. But it's really coming from this place of encouragement as opposed to shame and blame. So what's something somebody can do? Let's say somebody calls themselves names when they mess up. What's your best tip for what they can do to become more self-compassionate? Right. So first of all, just to recognize the effects of it. You know, just just imagine what if I did that to my good friend I cared about or my child? You know, what what would I do that? Well, of course I wouldn't do that because it would harm them. Right. And just getting in touch with the the pain of our own self-criticism and what, what it does to us is a really good first step just to realize the difference between how we treat ourselves and our friends. And then again, it, it's fairly, it's not that difficult to think about, well, what would it look like if I treated myself differently? What would I feel like? And by the way, it is going to feel weird at first. It's going to feel fake and phony. You aren't going to believe it because you're so used to being hard on yourself. And so there's a transition period. And um, but remember, you aren't saying you're wonderful, you're perfect. You aren't like giving yourself lies, but you're just saying, just like you would to a friend, hey, everyone makes mistakes. You're only human. That's true. That's very true. And then eventually you start getting used to it and you can start focusing on being a little warm and more warm and supportive. Physical touch is actually a very powerful signal of care. You know, putting your hand on your heart or maybe cradling your face or you know, giving yourself a little hug because your, your body doesn't really know the difference. Your body just feels um, cared for and supported. It actually changes your physiology and helps you calm down and feel safe. So it's, uh, it's actually not that difficult to try. We just need, it's really about giving ourselves permission. Uh, and again, if, if, you, if you're a skeptic, you won't know until you try it out. You know, give it, um, give it a try for a month and see what happens. You know? I'm a huge fan of saying, let's try something. Let's do it as an experiment for 30 days and see what exactly. happens. See what happens. Yeah. And in your book, I love that you gave a lot of your personal examples. So one that sticks out to me when you were teaching your son how to drive and you said you kind of crossed your arms, but really you're giving yourself a hug. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that's the thing is... um human beings, we affect each other emotionally. We're, we're very affected by the emotions of others and they're affected by our emotions. And it's, it's, this is pre-verbal. This is the way our brain is designed, you know, evolved to be able to communicate pre-verbally. 
And so what you cultivate inside, the mind state you cultivate in, inside is the mind state that every single other person in your life interacts with. So if you're grumpy and stressed and full of shame or blame and irritated, then the people in your life are, you know, picking up on that pre-verbally. But when you cultivate a compassionate mind state, kind, understanding, warm, supportive, then other people are interacting with that mind state, you know, and it really affects, not only are you regulating your own emotions, in a way you're helping to regulate the emotions of those people around you. And so for people who are afraid that self-compassion is selfish, it is not. It's actually the biggest gift you can give to others as well as yourself. Oh, I like that. That's important, I think. Yeah. So one of the other huge things that stuck out for me as you were talking about, uh, you said, we give ourselves compassion not to feel better, but because we feel bad. Can you yeah. explain that a little bit more? Yes. And it, it, we call it a paradox. And it is a little paradoxical because I've just talked about, well, compassion is wanting to alleviate suffering. It's not wanting to feel better. And yes, in the long term, obviously, we want to feel better. We want to heal. But in the moment, if we use self-compassion as a way to make the pain go away, right? So, so I think we have to accept and change at the same time. We have to accept that this hurts right now. And I'm going to do what I can to help myself in the future. But if we use it like a sugar coating or as like positive thinking or just pretending it's not there, what we know very clearly from the research is that if we deny negative emotions or we try to suppress them, it actually just makes them stronger. It doesn't work. So we need to open to the fact that this hurts, right? This hurts. Um, and only after opening to the fact that it hurts can we do what we can to try to help. So, if, so for instance, you mentioned some people come in and they did something like they they cheated on their their spouse and they want to just you know just forgive myself to get over it. Well, what's happening is they're skipping over that really important step of opening to the pain, you know, opening to the pain of hurting someone, opening to the pain of the person that they cared about that they hurt. It doesn't work if you do that. You have to fully open to the pain of it. And you can do that with compassion. You know, I feel so badly. This really hurts, you know, and just really just be with it. And this is where we need the more tender self-compassion to accept the pain. You know, we we accept ourselves that we're only human. And so we don't cut, but, but we're only human. So we're worthy of compassion, but it doesn't mean we, we blow things off. It means I can accept the pain of doing this. And then we can start to forgive ourselves and move forward. But if you skip over the steps, sometimes we like to call it spiritual bypass, you know, and you skip over opening to the pain. And so with self-compassion, if you skip the pain to get to the good stuff, it's actually not compassion, right? And, and so that's a very important principle of compassion. We open to the pain at the same time that we don't shame ourselves for the pain. And then we do what we can to help us, you know, move forward. In its own time, at its own pace, we aren't in control of that. I like that a lot because I find a lot of suffering comes from people trying to bypass the pain and yes. they sugarcoat it and then they can't figure out why they don't feel better down the road. Yeah. And that's how they often end up in my therapy office saying, yes. yeah, but I did X, Y, and Z and I don't feel better or I waited all this time and yet I haven't healed yet. Yes, exactly. Exactly. I thought another really impactful part of your book was where you talked about that it's okay to be a compassionate mess. And yes. you even gave your own example of saying, I don't have to spend a lot of time figuring out my patterns anymore. I can just accept that this is who I am or this is what I do without trying to further myself understanding. That's 
quite profound, I think, because so many people think that they have to have everything all figured out. Yeah. No, no, I had did a lot of therapy. So I have done work. It's not like, you know, I'm, I'm glad I did the work because there is a place for trying to heal some of your dysfunctional patterns you know, as well. But at this point, it's like, well, I'm, I'm functional enough. I'm not perfect. I mean, I'm so glad I'm a self-compassion teacher, not a mindfulness teacher, because I get it wrong all the time. And that's the thing about being a compassionate mess. It's not about getting it right. It's about opening your heart. And I really have learned to do that, to open to whatever the mess of the day is with compassion and, and support. Um, but, but at some point, it's like, okay, that is good enough. You know, I, I am functional enough. I don't need to understand my wounds. You know, it, it was helpful, but I, I've done enough of that. And now it's really just about, um, yeah, just accompanying myself on this journey. And I still make mistakes and I still get it wrong. So it's like this process of continually rebalancing. You get knocked off and you rebalance. You get knocked off and you rebalance. And at some point, that's okay. It's just, it's the process that interests you. It's the process of holding the whole mess of life and our personal mess with compassion. It's really, you start to value the open-heartedness more than what you're actually going through in the moment. And it's very liberating, very freeing when you get to that point. And how do you know when you get to that point? Well, I mean, I mean it's, it's not like you've got to do 20 years to get to that point. Some people may be ready to do that right now. That My own journey is I did need to do therapy and unpack some of my childhood wounds. And I think that's helpful for many people. Um, but, you know, I guess... You know, I th- I think it's again, it's again, it's not like a linear thing. It's not like you 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 do you work for ten years and then you get to the point. That point actually can come up again and again at any moment, right? So, and, and this is the thing about self compassion: it's a mind state shift. You can be, and I I've had this happen in the depths of despair, and then I remember, okay, can you have compassion for the the fact that you're in the depths of despair? And what you're doing when when you do that is instead of being lost in the despair. You're having perspective on it. And for me, it really helps to see the bigger picture. In other words, it's not just like me having compassion for myself. I'm actually connecting to this larger sense of consciousness, awareness. You know, you can put a spiritual spin on it if you want. Um, this larger presence of this compassionate consciousness that you can actually identify with when you aren't lost in your pain anymore. And the moment you do that, the moment you're seeing things from this more wide, expansive, compassionate view, then you aren't your small self anymore. You're, you're part of something bigger. You're part of, you're part of love. You're part of interconnectedness, interbeing. And almost immediately you can shift to a place that's, that's uh, uh, beautiful, even healing, right? And again, you, you can do that at any moment. It's, it's, not like, it's not really a linear thing. And how do you balance, say, self-acceptance with self-improvement? Let's say you have an unhealthy yeah. habit in your life. There might be times where you think, well, whatever, I'm going to live with this thing that I do versus yeah. do I need to change it? Well, the thing is, it's always both, right? So Carl Rogers said the curious paradox is the more I accept myself, the more I can change. And so you accept, the idea is you accept yourself unconditionally always. In other words, you're always unconditionally worthy of compassion, kindness, warmth, support. But you don't accept your behaviors unconditionally, right? So some behaviors, it may be, okay, well, I've, you know, good enough. And it's, you know, I seem to have grown as much as I can. And I don't need to be perfect. But other behaviors, it really is worth working on and changing and improving. And that's, that's your own wisdom, right? I, I can't say 
when that magic moment that you know, because you're, you're you and your own wise self, it also depends on your goals and your values, right? So if you're a professional basketball player, what's going to count is, you know, good enough is going to be different than someone who's amateur, right? So it really just depends on the person. And so that's why what we need to do is cultivate the mind state that allows us to have the wisdom to get asked, is this, is this something that, that's really important for my well-being and happiness? Or maybe not. Is this something, am I just being perfectionistic? You know, why am I doing it? Am I doing it really to feed my health and well-being? Or am I doing it to feed my ego? Right. So asking all those questions, I think, kind of helps you understand whether or not it's, it's good enough or we want to keep changing it. And also, it maybe, you know, your partner may have a, if you're in a relationship, your partner may have to say about this as well, right? Definitely. So, so you've been doing this so long. Hard and fast rules. It's always, it's always the question, what do I need in the moment to be well and happy? And the answer to that is going to change. Continue. Oh, I like that. I'm just asking yourself that question. Yeah. So you've been doing this a long time, more than 25 years. Am I right? Yeah, I have. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So now that you've been doing this, writing about it, speaking about it, studying it, researching it, teaching it for this long, do you still struggle at times with being too hard on yourself, calling yourself names? Do you still ever go to those places? I I don't. Um, I, I do. I, to be honest, I don't ever call myself names. But sometimes I do forget to be actively supportive toward myself. Right. And so, for instance, in the pandemic, you know, what, what happens to me is I get caught up in problem solving. OK, got to go to the grocery store, got to stock up or got to do this or got to do that. And so what, what will happen is I'll forget to pause and actually, again, step outside of myself to say, well, this is really hard. You know, I, I, I do remember occasionally, but, you know, sometimes if I get really busy or I'm caught up in things, that's more at this point. What happens is I just forget to do that pause and give myself compassion. But then I, I, remember, I remember eventually. Um, really, I would say my brain is pretty well trained not to call myself's name. You know, sometimes you still feel a little bit of shame, like when, when you do something and maybe hurt someone's feelings and there's that feeling of, because that shame is just almost automatic. It's, it's even, even built into our physiology that like, oh, I can't believe I did that. So I'll still feel that. That still comes up, right? Um, but I won't feed it by like believing it or calling myself names or falling into the trap of thinking that if I, you know, call myself names, I'm going to be less likely to do that behavior. I know for sure now that I'm less likely to do that behavior in the future. If I open to the shame, I give myself compassion for the shame. Um, I'm kind and supportive to myself for the shame. And then I'm, pretty good at almost immediately sending that apology email, <laughs> talking to the person and please forgive me. I'm, I mean, I was really, I was really out of line. Uh, so that's, that's kind of where, um, you know, and I, I'm, I'm still hoping to improve on that one. My, my, my temperament, believe it or not, tends to be reactive. I don't know why you shouldn't believe it. It tends to be reactive. That's part of why I, got, I'm, I was so drawn to self-compassion. I'm not one of those really naturally equanimous people. My, my, my wiring is to be more reactive, which is, I guess, kind of useful because in terms of re- relating to other people like that, you know, I'm, I'm always dealing with it. I haven't, I don't think it's a problem I'll ever solve, 
um, because it does seem to be part of my wiring. And that's actually partly why I wrote this book, because I call it reactive. And that's almost like maybe I shouldn't even use that term because it sounds judgmental. I'm very fierce. Right. And including I'm a fierce mama bear. If anyone threatens me or someone I love, I like this power rises up and it gets me into trouble. And yet what I've realized at this point in life, but this is what's how this is what's allowed me to accomplish what I've accomplished in my life. You know, my anger isn't a problem. (laughs) I mean, it can be if it's not harnessed for good. And so it's still something I need to work with. But that desire to see the truth, that, that desire to stand up for injustice, that desire to you know, change things for the good. That's actually a good thing. And it's, it's allowed me to accomplish what I've, a lot of what I've accomplished in life. And I wouldn't get rid of it for any amount of money in the world because it's helped me so much. And so it's really, uh, the story of the book is in many ways, the story of me coming to love and appreciate and honor and own my own fierceness. At the same time that I still need to work on when that fierceness harms others, it's not a good thing. So it's, it's always a balance. And I like that. Way, I think women in general have this issue as well, because we've been so socialized not to get angry, especially, or not to be too fierce. I'm mean, in a way that's really unhealthy. I think so too. And about what you just said, I think there's two really important points so that people know that with practice, with self-compassion, that over time, you just naturally become kinder to yourself. Yeah. And then figuring out how do you how do you accept parts of yourself and know that you can use different parts of yourself for good. So if you do yeah. tend to get angry, it's not a bad thing and that you can figure out self-compassion can be part of just figuring out how to use those things for good and that they don't you don't have to change everything about you. That's right. <laughs> what would be your advice for someone who says, "All right, I am not a very self-compassionate person. Where do I start?" Well, probably just quite literally, because uh, the easiest place to start is my website, which I've designed to kind of be the landing place for people. I, so if you Google self-compassion, you go straight there because I got in early, right? So all the algorithms point to me. And so on that, on my website, I've got uh, free guided meditations. If you like guided meditations, you can try it. I also have other practices that you can do in your daily life. Uh, if you're a research nerd, I have a ton of uh, the PDFs of actual research articles you can um, take my, the self-compassion test I developed to find out where you are on the scale. There's links to training. Um, I just added a new fierce self-compassion page and I'm adding new practices every week. So that's probably the, the best place to start. Um, and also I've got a lot of books out there as well. Um, but if, before you even invest in a book, you can just check out my free website and see if it seems like it's something that speaks to you. We'll, we'll link to it in our show notes so that everybody knows where to find you. And as you say, when you Google your name or you Google self-compassion, everything comes up that points to you because yeah. you're, the, you're the guru on it. But I well, hope I got that, in there early. So. <laughs> and I hope that people do pick up uh, self-compassion or your new, newest book, Fierce Self-Compassion, to learn more about how to talk to ourselves in a way that can greatly improve our uh, overall well-being. Dr. Kristen Neff, thank you so much for being on the Very Well Mind podcast. Thank you so much, Amy. It's been a pleasure. Welcome to The Therapist Take. This is the part of the show where I break down my guest strategies and share how you can start applying them to your own life. Here are three of the strategies that Kristen shared that you can start incorporating into your own life today. Number one, treat yourself like a good friend. The benefits of self-compassion are huge. But whenever something offers a really big payoff, we often assume that it's going to require a really big investment. 
But the truth is, incorporating more self-compassion into your life doesn't have to be all that complicated. Kristen says you just have to treat yourself the same way that you treat one of your good friends. This is something that I've talked about in my books and on this podcast before. When you're struggling with something or you make a mistake, pause and ask yourself, what would I say to my friend right now? You'd likely have some kind words to offer the other person. In episode 82, I talk about how to write yourself a kind letter. That's a really powerful exercise that can help you experience self-compassion when you're having a hard time. If you haven't listened to that episode yet, go check out number 82 and I'll teach you a simple but effective way to incorporate more self-compassion into your daily life. Number two, use physical touch. When most people think of self-compassion, they refer to the way that they talk to themselves. But Kristen makes it clear that showing kindness to yourself can also be about touch. She suggests giving yourself a hug or putting your hand on your heart. You can lower your stress level just by using a gentle touch with yourself. If there are people around and you don't want to look weird, she suggests crossing your arms and giving yourself a hug in a nonchalant way. You might lower the stress hormones in your body and start to feel better instantly. There might be some things you do already that you don't even realize that you're doing. Like you might rest your hands on your head to release tension. Or you might rub your feet together when you're falling asleep. Knowing how to use physical touch to calm your body and your brain is a really good tool. Give it a shot the next time you feel tension and see if you can help yourself feel just a little bit better. Number three, allow yourself to experience pain. Kristen makes it clear that self-compassion isn't helpful if you try to use it as a way to skip over the pain. Telling yourself that everything is great when you feel awful won't help. Sometimes you have to allow yourself to experience the pain before you move forward. So the goal of self-compassion shouldn't be about forcing yourself to feel happy. Of course, the side effect is that it tends to result in happier feelings. But forcing yourself to feel better shouldn't be your goal. Instead, allow yourself to experience unpleasant emotions like fear, anxiety, embarrassment, and sadness. If you're looking for strategies that can make those uncomfortable feelings feel just a little bit more tolerable, go listen to episode number nine. I share a science-backed strategy that helps uncomfortable feelings feel just a little bit better. So those are three of Kristen's strategies that I highly recommend. Treat yourself like a good friend, show compassion to yourself with physical touch, and allow yourself to experience pain. If you want more tips on how to practice self-compassion, check out Kristen's website at selfcompassion.org. Her site provides tons of resources like online quizzes, information about her books, and online courses that can help you cultivate more self-compassion. Thank you for listening to the Very Well Mind podcast. If you found this episode informative, please share the episode with your friends and family and leave a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more about the Very Well Mind podcast, you can head to verywellmind.com slash podcasts.